Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. You can find episode show notes, past episode archives, and listener discussions at our website, thenexttrack.com. And in between episodes, follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. This week, we're very happy to welcome a special guest, Philip Thomas, who is pianist. Philip has recorded a set of Morton Feldman's piano music on five CDs for the record label Another Tambra. Philip, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I've actually been wanting to get someone to talk about Feldman for a long time. He's one of my favorite composers. And when we had Simon Raynell, the head of Another Tambra, there will be a link in the show notes to the episode we did with him, he mentioned your forthcoming box set, and I just rubbed my hands and said, ooh, that would be wonderful. You have recorded all of Feldman's piano music. And, you know, it's interesting, in your liner notes, you say that he wrote a lot of piano music, yet there's only five CDs. And, and I guess when I think of a lot, I think of, you know, Bach and Mozart. Feldman's overall output wasn't that huge, but there is a, a vast range of works on these five CDs from pieces that go from, let's see, 1942 with a question mark, untitled piano piece, through 1985. Feldman died, what, in 86, 87? Yeah, 87, yeah. Yeah. So um, one of the pieces, uh, I guess, from the 50s, uh, that's really where his, his music starts, 1950-ish. Um, and, and, of course, those pieces are mostly quite short. So, so you've got a lot of pieces, a lot of piano pieces, mainly piano pieces because, of course, David Tudor was around, the pianist, and so they all at that time, Cage and Christian Wolfe and Alban, they all wrote for David Tudor. So there's these huge uh, number of, of short-ish piano pieces around in the 1950s, and then the piano music just sort of breaks off after about 1963, which or 1964, which, which coincides really with the time that Tudor stops playing piano. I didn't realise that. Yeah, because there was a big gap. He he only came back to the piano in 1977, um, although he was still writing piano parts for some of his other works, correct? Yeah, and the piano features uh, in in lots of them, most of the ensemble pieces from that time, um, and including multiple piano pieces, you know, five pianos, um, uh, three pianos, and, and so forth. So the, the piano is a, a recurring instrument in his in his output, but he doesn't come back to writing a solo piece for piano until 1977. And by that time, he's encountered um, two specifically uh, other pianists who play his music, uh, Roger Woodward and Aki Takahashi. Yes, and I, I will recommend, first of all, anyone who cares about Feldman, you should buy this set. And I think, is it going to be out of print soon? I know that it's been selling quite well, or is Simon planning to repress it? It's already gone to repress. Oh, good. Okay. The liner notes in here are extraordinary because they discuss not only the history of the music, each individual work, but an extraordinary overview of the way you approach it and the way you play it. I have a number of questions written down to discuss that later. But the, the first thing that I want to look at is, so I grew up in New York City, and I never heard of Feldman back then. I was going to concerts with Steve Reich and Philip Glass, and I was aware of Cage, even though I wasn't in that, what we call the downtown scene. But why had Feldman been so little known back in the 70s and 80s? I left New York in 1984. Why was he not that well known? Uh, well, that's a difficult question for me to answer. Because you weren't there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but I guess you've got a, a, a move... Feldman to Buffalo, and he really set up base in Buffalo um, in the last, uh, well, I guess 20-odd years of his life, 
Um, and uh, so there's there's that difference. And although I know, you know, people travel a lot between those two towns, uh, still, I guess that 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 separation. And of course, although he's often considered to be part of the New York school, really, that period only lasted a few years. And yeah. we kind of, you know, we create this sort of myth around who was um, doing what with whom and at that time. But, but but it really was a short time where they kind of, these people were in the same place at the same time and their work influenced each other in really profound and significant ways. But then they all went their separate ways. I mean, Christian Wolf went off, I mean, he signed up. So he was he was uh, uh, with the army in, in, in Germany, stationed in Germany. And but he was very young then. And then he came back to Harvard and so forth and Feldman, um, so yes, he stayed around in New York for a few years more, but um, was in Buffalo uh, uh, later in life. And of course, he also toured and did performances in in Europe. And I think that there's a sense that he either he separated himself or that he his music is so different from perhaps what Cage was doing that there was that separation anyway. That he kind of was like a good old fashioned composer. Um, his music's really notated there's although he's often people talk about his graph pieces that they're few and far between and although there's lots of experimentation with his notation and it is a fascinating subject it is still primarily kind of good old-fashioned notated music so there's that sense of that he's quite a conventional composer in some respects. Unlike Cage, who used all of his chance operations after, what, the late 1950s, they were famously good friends in that early period. Do you want to tell the story of how they met? Well, actually, I mean, I suspect there's probably, again, a lot of myth-making going on there. But there is the famous story. The narrative is that they met in, um, in a kind of uh, concert auditorium after a performance of Webern, and I think the orchestra were going on to play some I don't know, maybe Rachmaninoff or something. Yeah, I think so. Then they they sort of both left in the interval and uh, encountered each other in, in in the auditorium and and immediately got talking and and it all took off from there. It's not entirely true. I mean, it, they were both aware of each other and um, not least um, Feldman knew David Tudor before then through the connections with uh, his tutor uh, Stefan Wolpe. Uh, so, and, and Stefan's uh, wife was also David Tudor's um, sort of piano teacher at the time, or would. So they were all very close to that circle. Um, so I, mean, I think the scene was such that it, it wasn't just a first encounter. Yeah. It's it's a nice story, though. It's kind of like the story about Bach writing the Goldberg variations for to put someone to sleep and... <laughs> Or, or dying in the middle of that final fugue in, in The Art of Fugue. It sounds nice. It sells records, it does, doesn't it? it does. <laughs> so one thing that brought me to Morton Feldman was his really long works. I find that when I listen to a work like, let's take Triadic Memories from 1981, comes in on your recording at about 90 minutes, for Benita Marcus, 1985, at 70 minutes. There's something about the sound world that's created there that is enveloping and it's far beyond any musical narrative and melody. It's that you've entered a universe with a certain type of structure that's being played over and over again. I don't know if I'm making much sense, but you do discuss some of that in your liner notes. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right, Kurt. That you, you do, you, you kind of enter this world where suddenly everything else just gets thrown out the window. You're in this place, and um, it's an incredible kind of focus 
um, both as a listener and, and for me as a performer. And you're, you're just in this um, really quite a special and unique place. Um, and in performance, whilst I've played these pieces a number of times and I know, you know, I know them pretty well, um, uh, you're still kind of in, in this place where you're not quite sure what's going to happen next. Uh, I mean, I do know what's going to happen next, but I, I also, there's this feeling of it just being on the edge the whole time and, um, and responding to an audience, particularly live as well. You, you know, if there's a little bit of restlessness, you tend to go even closer in, you know, quieter still, draw people in. And you're, you're in this incredible space, uh, what I love is, is to perform the stuff live and, and to do that with people kind of together is really, um, it's unlike a, a lot of uh, conventional music experiences where maybe your sense that you're, you've got this thing that you've been practicing for however long and then you, you project it out to these people. This is your idea of the piece and you're, you're giving it to people. Here in Furman, you're you're sort of with everyone. You're inviting them in, and let's go on this journey together. That's it's an incredible um, uh, space and um, sense of attention. Yeah, I, I was actually listening to a recording of Charles Ives' uh, second piano sonata last night, which is notoriously difficult. I'm sure David Tudor would have, you know, done that with one hand tied behind his back. And, and I was thinking in preparation for today. I don't think Feldman's pieces, even though they seem simple on the surface, are any easier than playing that Ives, are they? Well, it's a different kind of challenge. You know, I mean, the, the, if you like, some of the technical difficulties of the Ives are just simply not present in, in Feldman, um, or at least in most Feldman. Um, uh, but but the, the focus and attention needed to just keep that sense of a sort of equilibrium the whole time, you know, for 70 minutes or 90 minutes or whatever it is to, you, you, you're just drawn down into the very nature of the piano and the piano attack, you know, how, how a hammer hits a string and you suddenly become aware of this incredible variety within this sort of dynamic of very quiet sounds. And um, you sort of hear the, the variability in the piano, the variability in your own touch, um, and and suddenly the, this this what you think is quite a small um, restrained space suddenly becomes the whole world, and you really hear massive variety within that 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 small um, dynamic range. And so the virtuosity of playing the music, I guess, is on trying to um, calibrate within that sort of dynamic range, so that there are times when you're just trying to make it all as soft as you can and absolutely even. And other times when you perhaps just allow it to open out a bit and flourish a little bit more. And, and it seems like maintaining these dynamics across long periods and, and maintaining them constant must be incredibly difficult. Um, well, it, obviously you're at your level, you've, you're probably past thinking about that, but to me, it seems like every note has to have the right dynamics. And since often notes are alone or in very short figures, you don't have much room for pressing the key a little bit harder or a little bit softer. Yeah, and the, exactly, you don't. And the piano is kind of, it's not a great instrument for taking risks. You know, you've got one shot at it, you know, not like a, another <laughs> instrument where you can allow the sound, it doesn't quite start as you want to do, you can, you can change it and modify it. You know, you've just got one go. You, play, you, you, you let that um, key 
then a hammer hits a string and either it is just too quiet for it to, or, or usually by that I mean too slow for it to really hit the string with any kind of um, attack so there's no sound or it's just, you just misjudged it and it comes out louder than you thought and you wince. <laughs> and, and there's more than one hammer being depressed at one time, I'm sure. So managing all that physicality and, and trying to you know interpret and predict how, what the sound is going to be must be a, a, right, a challenge. Yeah. And also playing um, chords in Farman is really hard. I mean, it's a, trying to get, you know, a, say, a six or seven note chord so that every note try and comes out. I don't try and voice them in any particular. I don't try and make the upper notes sound more than a... But I, you do want this kind of consistency of touch. You get this glow of a sound. How much interpretation are you allowed? I, I, I'm not a Feldman guy, although Kirkus encouraged me to listen to some of his pieces. And the idea that you sort of have to break through a, a, a bubble to get into the world that's in there, mm. I, think, I think is apt. I think that's right. Yeah. But how much interpretation are you allowed as the performer in realizing these pieces? Well, that's a huge question. <laughs> uh, well, you point out in your liner notes, for instance, that Triadic Memories, I, I believe you're comparing the Roger Woodward and the Akita Shahashi recordings, that one is 90 minutes and one is 60 minutes. Yeah, yeah. So that's a pretty big change, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's huge. And these aren't uh, 1P and it's not playing the repeats like in the Goldberg variations. No, no. There was a recording that where where the um, the pianist um, got a, uh, an old, a, a, the first published edition of that piece did miss out the, re the repeats. And so and they didn't know that. They just, that's what the music was. So they um, they recorded it and then they've had to do a second recording since because they realized the error. Not the pianist's fault, really, but um, um, uh, that particular piece, Triadic Memories, doesn't actually have a tempo mark. So that's that's why there's such a variability in in between those two recordings. Though it is fascinating that it's dedicated to precisely those two people. <laughs> the two people for whom it was written had this huge, no, completely different approach to the piece. Um, but to come back to the point about interpretation more, more generally, I mean, I, I, at one level, I could say that everything I do is interpreted. You can't make a sound without interpreting it in some way. And of course, that's partly goes to my body, my physiology, my hands, my sensibility, my taste, the harmonies that I respond to and so forth. Um, but at another level, I suppose I am trying to also just try and allow the music to be itself, to, to not push it around too much. As Falban himself said about sound, you know, I try not to push the sounds around, he said to Stockhaus once in a, in a conversation. And that's kind of my role really as a pianist as well. I'm, I'm trying, uh, there's an experimental aesthetic in playing it where you're just trying to listen, allow the, the sounds that you hear, which are often the result of the, the your attack, you know, the way in which you played, um, the piano at that instant allow those sounds then to inform when to play the next sound or how to play the next sound and there's that sense that yeah I kind of know I, I, in practice I've I've worked out what I'm going to do I've put in some fingerings and so I know I can navigate my way around the score but in performance there's an experiment taking place that you're really listening and you're involved in that moment making decisions there and then so with triadic memories, if you say that there's no tempo markings, does that mean that you're essentially playing a phrase and starting the next phrase 
at the point at which you think the previous phrase has decayed enough to move on? Uh, actually, in those uh, two late pieces there, um, the, the durations are pretty much fixed. It's just that the tempo mark's not fixed. Oh, okay. So that's different. So um, you have to make a decision at some point as to what seems to be the best speed which governs then the whole piece. And although there's definitely fluctuations in my recording, um, by and large, I've chosen a tempo that allows me to then play later sections um, in the way that I think is also consistent with, with what I want. So he sort of starts the piece, for example, with a sense of four in a bar. And the first half at least of the piece is, is very much this kind of four beats in a bar sense and gradually he shifts that towards being like three in a bar but the same length bar so it's, it's just simply dividing the meter up differently and then two-thirds of the way through all hell breaks loose and it's it, it you just lose all sense of beat and meter and it goes um uh, very irregular indeed and and yeah it seems to shift gears all of a sudden yeah it really does it really does and so you, th that decision that you make at the beginning such an important decision because it conditions what you're going to be playing an hour and a quarter later you know <laughs> it's it's it's, just a, it's not not a usual situation yeah it's worth pointing out that if you buy this box set there's a note on the back of the second disc for Triadic Memories. It says that the piece lasts 90 minutes. It's been, been split into two parts on disc. And if you've bought the box set to contact another timbre, and they will send you a lossless flack file without any edits in it, a 90-minute file. And I have a couple of recordings where it's on two discs at about 40 or 45 minutes each disc. And you get that fade out and fade in. With digital, all they have to do is just cut it precisely, and then if you rip it, they'll play smoothly from one into the other. But I think that's really good to respect the dignity of the entire piece, saying to people, you've bought this record, now you're going to be able to download the entire piece like that. Yeah, that's a nice move. I mean, I, I, I was very aware that when I mean, that's the one piece that I thought, well, maybe I could fit it onto a single disc. You know, I could do it. because I got 80 minutes, liberty. yeah. Yeah, and of course, Ake Takahashi's recording is, you know, a lot shorter. And I just decided to say that this is going to be, this is probably the only time I'm going to record this piece. I'm going to make the decision based upon how I play the music and, and whatever happens. I genuinely, I didn't know until I'd done it, how long it would be. You know, I, I just didn't know. I mean, I kind of got a sense of, I've been playing it for, for a couple of decades, that piece. But so I kind of have a sense of how long I've often taken over it. But, you know, you don't really practice it at home from beginning to end it's not the sort of piece that you think of as a time length you just do the piece yeah so that was my thing i did it and then we said well this is the situation it's not going to fit in a single disc uh we're going to break it some way and we're going to release it as a as a download as well so that was that it's so unusual that you you have to think of the medium that your recording is on yeah. and and how that may affect your performance i mean this is one of those situations where you do have something longer than the medium. I can't imagine having that that kind of constraint. You know, being able to ignore that limitation completely must be uh, must be terrific. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And of course, for the for the piano music, it's only that one piece. But there are other pieces by Feldman, which uh, you know, this is really a big issue. <laughs> well, his second string quartet that goes on to six hours, but on the mode recording, it doesn't fade; it just cuts from one disc to the next. 
So if you rip it, you can play the whole thing through, which I've done at times. And, you know, something like that, and even Triadic Memories for Benita Marcus, I get the feeling that when I put them on, if I walk away to make tea or do something and come back, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I completely agree. And then, you, you know, in performance, the reality is that uh, how much sustained concentration can you give a thing? Uh, 90 minutes long. I My experience is that there will be times when I'm completely in that zone, in that focus zone as a listener. And other times I'm like, you know, maybe just wandering off. I've relaxed a bit or I'm just thinking about my, you know, my, my bum and the hard seat I'm sitting on or something like that. It's nice to know that it's okay that you can suspend your concentration. I mean, that's convenient. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, someone like yeah. me, the novice Feldman listener, you know, I want to get everything right away. I want to grok it right away. Yeah. And yeah. if it's okay to get up and leave the room and, you know, I don't know, maybe experience it a little more ambiently rather than, you know, this concentrated listening. That's yeah, great. I mean, I, I, I think, I mean, anything is okay. It would be awful to think that it's not. But, but uh, I mean, I think with Feldman, you, you, you know, if you, if you left the piece at some point, you will, you will miss something. You'll, you'll lose something in, in a way that perhaps if a long piece by Cage arguably you wouldn't i mean you would miss something but but the piece survives with or without it and with farman something might have shifted in the piece that there is a sense of a narrative in farman which you don't get in cage yeah so there is Definitely. that sense that it moves from the beginning and it goes to the end um so but 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 you know let's be let's be human about it <laughs> and this these are long pieces and i think anyone's attention will will drift in different ways and um I, it'd be awful i mean i i hate the kind of the classical music situation where you know any shuffle of anyone's seat and you get three people turning around at you and telling yeah. you to, I'm, I kind of yes we've discussed that a couple of times on on this podcast uh, and i mentioned one one concert i went to in birmingham it was murray pariah doing the emperor piano concerto and beethoven's first symphony it opened with a one-movement piece of, of serenade for violin or something, and everyone applauded after it. So after the end of the first movement of the first symphony, which seems to have an ending, a lot of people started applauding, and you get all these people going, shh. Yeah, well, you know, leave them to their own self-righteous, whatever. But I mean, it's, yes. the, and, and the reality is also that in, 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 in performances of this music, it's quite likely nowadays that someone's mobile phone will go off that's that's normal uh, or there's going to be whatever noises of stuff outside it, it's and of course at one level of course a mobile phone going off in the middle of feldman will disturb the experience of people it, it will there's no doubt about that but but it's just life <laughs> well i i I keep my iPhone on mute all the time, but when I do need to hear it, my ringtone is a clip from Terry Riley's In C. So if that were to go off during the Feldman, that would be an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I just prefer the Nokia theme tune, really. <laughs> <laughs> when I got this set and I started listening to it, I was thinking to myself, you know, I know that Feldman's music is very often 
P, 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 pianissimo, pianissimo, as, as soft as possible. And I was thinking, you know what we need? We need in these recordings an indication of what decibel level we should have when we're listening, because you can put an app on your phone and you can check the decibel level. And I hadn't read your liner notes by that at that point. And you go into this and you blow that apart. You say it doesn't have to be that soft. In fact, maybe we should be listening to it louder than he intended. Well, uh, you know, yeah, this is a bit of a bugbear of mine, really. But often you get Farman CDs or, or music like that and says, you know, this music is meant to be quiet, keep it low, low down. Well, it's, it's not also meant to be played through loudspeakers in your living room. It's, it's well, In that sense, it's it's an acoustic instrument right in front of you. And depending on where you are in a concert hall or a room, would change your perception of what's going on. And uh, for me, it plays into this, for me, what is a misconception that Feldman's music is about quietness. And for sure, most of it is very quiet. But I don't think it's about quietness. I think it's about sound. And he he creates these, he asks you to play these very low dynamic levels so that your focus is really in on the sound and also... um, so that you're not thinking about um, attack and you're not thinking about um, kind of meter and rhythm and that sort of stuff, but you're really focusing upon how a sound um, moves in time. And on the piano, of course, that's really, you know, like I said, you've got one shot at it, but then you've got this decay. And it's fascinating. When you're listening to the piano decay, it's fascinating. It goes on a journey. And sometimes that journey seems to, you know, it seems to crescendo. It seems to going to get loud before it goes gets quieter. And uh, these are rich um, sonic properties of playing the piano. And when you've got these kind of the pedals half down, or you've got chords going on, you get all these sounds um, kind of knocking into each other and creating overtones and really unusual sort of uh, harmonics and and resonances. That for me is where Feldman's music resides. Um, so, yeah, I said in the um, liner notes, maybe turn it up. I, I don't mean it that it should be loud. And if you play it too loud, it's going to be, it's going to probably be detrimental. But but the fascination and the complexity of the music is there in the sound. Um, and that's, I think, what Feldman is really after. I mean, the notation is so detailed as well. So there's these minute, details of, of um, duration and um, where the relationship between one sand and the next sand and the next sand. These are, are, are really precisely notated in a number of the pieces. And uh, you miss that if it's too quiet. If it's just turned down on your speaker, you're going to miss all of that. And, um, and actually that kind of close-up listening. And I do sometimes feel like playing the piano I'm privileged enough to hear this stuff in a way that no one else in the concert space can hear it. Well, you mentioned in your notes that you recorded this quite close because of that. Exactly, yeah. I mean, partly I know that that's how Simon Rennell records anyway. Uh, But I I really wanted to do that. I really wanted to get that sense of, um, of, of someone listening to the piano and the way I hear it, the way I'm sat at the piano. And there's these pictures of Feldman sometimes just sitting at the piano, almost with his ear, you know, right into the piano and that attentiveness to the sound. Uh, I really wanted to capture something of that with these recordings. And I think, you know, Simon's done a fantastic job recording, really does do exactly what I'd hoped for. And, and I do think it sounds distinct. 
from other recordings in that way you know it just provides a different kind of just simply from the recording it it provides a different um story different side to fun well i, I want to repeat if anyone's curious about feldman do get this set it's not very expensive i think it was 32 pounds for the five cds back in the day you'd pay that for two cds and in particular, those long pieces. And if you're new to Feldman, I would recommend looking up on whatever streaming service you use, a piece from 1986 called Palais de Marie, which on this recording is 22 minutes long, and it's usually around 20 to 25 minutes. And I think that's a really good microcosm of Feldman's late works without committing to an hour or 90 minutes of his music. Yeah, absolutely right. It's a really beautiful piece of music, yeah. Philip, I want to thank you very much for joining us. This has been wonderful. I, I hope this sells many thousands of copies. I know it's sold out more quickly than Simon and you had hoped for. And I hope one of these days you'll do a concert in my neck of the woods. I know Birmingham's not that far. Are you planning to play there at all? Uh, I don't think I've got anything lined up. I played in Birmingham, played some Fubbin in Birmingham last year, actually. Did a crippled oh. cemetery. So there you go. Oh. You missed it. I missed it. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Philip. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Great to speak to you both. Okay, like we do at the end of every show, time for our next tracks. Kirk, what have you got? This is totally unfeldmanesque. Now, I, you, when I say that, you might think I'm going to pick the Ramones or the Clash, but no, it's not that unfeldmanesque. I stumbled on Apple Music the other day to a record that's 25 years old and that I really liked when it came out and that I haven't listened to in a long time. It's called Officium. It's Jan Garbarek, a Norwegian saxophonist, and the four-person vocal group, the Hilliard Ensemble. Now, the Hilliard Ensemble, I believe they've retired or broken up recently, but they made dozens of recordings of medieval music, polyphonic music, four voices. And they got together with Jan Garbarek, this soprano saxophonist, and the premise is kind of odd. They went to this monastery and they sang a bunch of songs, you know, this medieval polyphonic with these long notes and all that, and Garbarek improvised soprano saxophone over it. It sounds like it shouldn't work, yet it does. And in fact, it was one of ECM's most successful recordings with sales of more than 1.5 million, believe it or not. And... I stumbled on it again last week, looking through ECM stuff on Apple Music, and I realized, wow, this is really unique. It's not medieval music, it's not jazz, but it's some sort of a, a mixture, and I, I hate to use that term world music, which just means anything goes, but somehow they had a, a certain chemistry when they did this that worked. Now, this wasn't the only recording they did together. They did a second record called Menemosyne, M-N-E-M-O-S-Y-N-E, -E, and that, I believe, it was two CDs with music by a variety of composers from different periods. A third one was called Officium Novum. Again, some of this music was modern and some of it was medieval. And they've just released another recording called Remember Me, My Dear. It was recorded in 2014. Again, it is a lot of music from different periods, from Arvo Pert to Hildegard von Bingen, and there's even a piece that seems to be composed by Garbarek himself. It's an interesting combination. You'll like it or you won't, as the Brits over here say, it's Marmite. People either like Marmite or they hate it. Marmite is this yeasty spread that you put on bread, and it's really disgusting. So if you don't like this record, that's up to you. Doug, what have you got? Well, the other day, I found one of my prized possessions. It is an audiophile. Now, the funny thing here is, it is one of the first, if not the first, audiophile I ripped from CD. And the date on it is 1996. 
So I must have done it at work where we had Windows machines. I don't think my Mac stuff had ripping at that point. Um, it's XTC's Black Sea, and it's uh, Respectable Street is the, the, the file I kept. Back when I was ripping CDs, I really didn't think that at the time I would be ripping all of my CDs. At the time, I thought, well, I'll rip, you know, a dozen or so CDs, and then I'll have the files. Of course, at the time, I was thinking, what's the point of this? If I want to listen to music at home, I've got the CDs. What do I need to have the files on my computer for? But anyway, I did rip a few favorite CDs, and one of those is Black Sea from XTC. Um, I got the album when it first came out in 1980. It was a pretty big sensation on college radio at the time, and I know it was big in England. It wasn't big on commercial radio here, but it turns out that it's really one of my favorite records. Um, I like all the songs on it. I, I, it's just that album. Of course, whenever I you know, replenish my music library, I always make sure to get an Exile on Main Street and a London Calling and Live at Leeds and Rockin' the Fillmore and stuff like that. And I always try to get Black Sea. But I kept the original 1996 rip as a sort of memento of how much I love this album. I've probably had a good 10 or 12 copies of it. It's, uh, it's, it's a great pop album. They had evolved, the XTC that is, had evolved from this sort of quirky English version of Talking Heads to a more refined uh, pop unit. And they had several hits on it. I, every song on the, on the record, as far as I know, is very familiar. But uh, the ones that are most popular are Respectable Street, Towers of London, Generals and Majors, Sergeant Rock. Um, and the great thing about it, at least from my point of view, is it's such a British record. You listen to it and you're quickly transported in that first song, Respectable Street, to the, uh, the hedgerows of a, of a middle-class London neighborhood. It it's just has a great singular sound. Uh, of course, it was produced by Steve Lillywhite, and everything he touched turned to gold, so that has a lot to do with it. But uh, great musicianship. There was also some competition in the band with who could write the better pop song. Uh, it, it's just a really great dynamic record. And like most um, XTC albums, it's very pleasant. Um, later on, they got a little too pleasant, but this era in the late 70s and the early 80s, I think, is, is really their best period. And so that's why I'm going to listen to Black Sea, from XTC. It's my next track. This was episode number 161 of The Next Track. Thank you very much for listening. Your comments are welcome. You can start or join a conversation on this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you gave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can't leave a review, well, spread the word among your family and friends. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.